Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Heritage Events Live with friends like these, the criticality of allies who care in great power competition. We're thrilled to have you here. Here are some tips for making the most of your virtual experience with us. Please submit questions through the questions tab. Feel free to share your name and affiliation. We love to know who's joining us. If there are any minor technical issues, we ask for your patience, as many of us are working from home and using home internet. I now invite Dakota Wood, Heritage's Senior Research Fellow for Defense Programs to come on screen. We hope you enjoy the program. Catherine, thank you so much for uh, getting this all set up. I'm looking forward to just a, a super, uh, super event today. And uh, you know, these things don't work if we don't have uh, people who are interested in the topic and join. And we've got an extraordinary group of uh, attendees. Um, as mentioned in the invitation, this particular essay was written in support of our upcoming 2021 uh, Heritage Foundation's Index of U.S. Military Strength. That'll be released in mid-November, uh, but provided at the link, and I believe here on the, the screen here shortly, um, is a, um, a snapshot of our 2020 index. And uh, this uh, has been a terrific series of report cards, basically, on the status of American military power. And what we try to do is provide context for that. You know, whether you have one ship or 100 ships, uh, it really matters uh, whether the world is an easy place to operate in or a hard place, whether your enemies and competitors have capabilities and are belligerent or are very quiet. And, and a huge piece of that is uh, your friends, right? Your allies, uh, the alliance structures you have, whether you have other people on your team uh, that you can rely on. Uh, hence the, the critical importance of this particular essay by uh, Dr. Andrew Mikta, who I asked to join me at this particular time. And uh, what Dr. Mikta has done is really looked at the state of affairs uh, with our uh, NATO allies in particular, but more broadly, the context of alliance relationships and how they play out in uh, various contexts. So what I would like to do uh, as, uh, as Andrew uh, joins us here on the screen is uh, because he works for the government, uh, this uh, really uh, important disclaimer, uh, Dr. Andrew A. Mikta is the Dean of College of International and Security Studies at the George D. Marshall European Center for Security Studies. And I would remind our attendees that uh, he is joining us from Garmisch, Germany. So again, the, the miracle of uh, modern technology enables this kind of uh, event to occur. And it's important to note that his views presented here are his, uh, the author of the essay, and obviously what he's going to be sharing with us today, and do not necessarily reflect those of the George C. Marshall European Center for Security Studies, the Department of Defense of the United States government. So with that caveat out of the way, providing context for our discussions, uh, again, I'd like to highlight the importance of this particular topic. You know, in an era of great power competition, it's almost become a bumper sticker slogan these days. I think Dr. McDo would agree with me on that. Uh, and then the importance of, of alliances. So what I'm going to do is turn it over to you, uh, Andrew, and uh, provide some insights into your essay. And then we'll go into a bit of discussion uh, about the points that you make and kind of the ongoing conversation that you and I have had uh, for quite a while now. Uh, and then in, in just a little bit, we'll open it up for uh, questions from our audience. 
and have what I hope is a very interactive and informal uh, discussion about this issue of U.S. posture, the posture and capabilities of our alliances, and the various pressures which bring all this uh, really into question from time to time, and, and perhaps what the current administration or other administrations have done, are doing, and can do to strengthen these sorts of relationships. So over to you, Dr. Mickton. Thank you very much, Dakota, and thank you to Heritage for organizing this uh, terrific event. Thank you to all of you who are out there listening, and I look forward to your questions. Uh, just to reinforce what Dakota has said, these are my private views as analysts and should be treated as such. So to come into the essay, I commented from the perspective of several assumptions. Uh, the initial assumption for me is that our geostrategic situation, uh, the situation the United States finds itself in today, is arguably more complex and more difficult than even at any time during the Cold War, uh, in that uh, we are now confronted with two near-peer competitors when it comes to the military uh, arena in particular. Um, whereas during the Cold War, we were largely confronted predominantly with uh, the military threat coming from Russia. Russia was never, the Soviet Union was never an economic threat. And China was uh, largely a regional player, and we actually leveraged that, uh, that uh, particular aspect of, of the Cold War quite effectively following uh, Nixon Kissinger. We're now confronted with China, uh, with Russia and China. Russia is a quintessentially revisionist power, in my view. It wants to revise the post-Cold War uh, international settlement. Uh, China actually wants to replace that settlement uh, with a set of uh, institutions, values, principles, and economic and security structures of its own. So we are dealing, in effect, with the challenge of two simultaneous threats confronting us uh, and potentially two theaters where we must ensure that deterrence holds and where we can, if we need to, uh, respond. My second point here is that in this complex strategic environment, we have uh, a U.S. military that has been engaged in military operations for two decades now. Uh, a global war on terror, overseas contingency operations, whichever term you want to use, has restructured our military and has also um, limited the extent to which the modernization would follow what is today confronting us, which is the great power competition. We were uh, concentrating on counterterrorist operations, irregular warfare and such. Uh, and in that context, uh, I posit that we are pro we're in the process of rebuilding our capabilities, but we're coming at the tail end of two decades of warfare and, quite frankly, three decades of reduced investment in what needed to be done, especially at the, uh, at the level of hardware and systems that are needed. Uh, in that context, I come at alliances, alliances as key enablers for the United States as we're looking at a theater in the Indo-Pacific and a theater in Europe. Uh, and uh, that means that in the event we are challenged simultaneously in the two theaters, we need to rely on our allies. Even if the challenge arises in just one theater, we need to have capable allies who can uh, uh, respond and maintain deterrence. And in the event deterrence fails, they're able to act accordingly. And here's the rub. Um, I, uh, when you look at the European theater in particular, we have several factors that seem to be working against developing the kind of larger, uh, capable, uh, renewed NATO alliance. And I, I would welcome your comments going forward. And here in the essay, I look at several factors. One is the regionalization of security optics. 
we, because we do not have, I would argue, the same overarching nature of the threat consensus that we had during the Cold War, we are looking almost as a kind of shifting perception as you travel from the NATO flank in the east or in the southeast, farther to, to Central Europe and then to Western Europe, uh, where if you are on the flank, Russia is quintessentially the principal uh, threat, and as you move uh, away from the frank, uh, flank, the perspective may be changing. The second issue is how the Europeans look at China in this context. For the United States, China is now without question both a military problem set and an economic problem set. Uh, here we are not completely in sync with our European allies. I would argue the Europeans are increasingly recognizing uh, the nature of the military dimension of the Chinese threat, but they still see China predominantly as an economic problem set. Uh, we need to find a way to bridge that. And then very quickly, not to take too much of, of our time for the discussion, if you move to the Asia-Pacific, you have a much less structured alliance environment. NATO is a highly bureaucratized organization. You've got the European Union institutions. You've got a whole network of institutional arrangements. In my essay, when I look at the uh, Asia-Pacific, I speak largely of South Korea, Japan, and Australia, and New Zealand as the kind of core group of allies uh, that are likely to uh, see the, the changing security dimension uh, the way we do. Um, my final plea in the essay is that uh, we need to address this hard security strategic challenge and get away from the political dimension of it, especially the kind of uh, uh, personalities and, and arguments and perceptions that we've, we've had over, not just over the, the last three years, but over the last uh, decade or longer, about uh, how we see each other as allies. In other words, I see NATO today as confronted with the requirement of not just burden sharing, but to a large extent burden transferring. That is sufficient investment in hard exercise capabilities. So that's in, in the event there's a threat in the Indo-Pacific that pulls the United States uh, attention in that direction, of course, we would remain in Europe with our enabler, with our strategic de deterrence and so forth, but that the Europeans can ensure deterrence holds. And the same applies when we speak about Asia-Pacific Alliance. And I'll stop here, Dakota, and I'll turn back over to you. Thank you. I'm glad you brought up that point about the difference between burden sharing and thinking about it in terms of burden transfer or burden transference. Uh, clearly, that implies that your partner has the ability to contribute something, right? And, uh, and so in your essay, uh, I think you make some, obviously, some great points uh, one of which is that NATO is less than it was in terms of military capability that it had during the Cold War when it was NATO versus Warsaw Pact and Germany was divided and all those sorts of things. And it's also different, right? So the Cold War ends and during the happy decade of the 1990s, there was a lot of disinvestment, underinvestment, uh, military capabilities were allowed to shrink into weather because there wasn't you know, this massive opponent uh, across the uh, Eastern European side, you know, in the form of the Soviet Union and, and Russia at its core. And so it has, NATO members have less military capability, and the military capability they have is very much at home. I mean, there isn't much that is in the form of power projection, right? They can't really deliver things uh, someplace. So for the United States, if you needed to go to some other part of the world, like the Middle East or the Indo-Pacific, and you're dealing with these major competitors uh, like Russia and China, or if you had to deal with something like Iran, I mean, all this is wrapped up in the national defense strategy. 
uh, how do you uncover Europe if Europe can't take care of itself at the very least, right? So maybe you could uh, talk a little bit about your own experience in dealing with your counterparts and the uh, political military establishments there amongst our uh, NATO allies and kind of how they view this. I mean, uh, the current administration has been criticized uh, for its uh, what's called transactional approach uh, instead of a shared value sort of thing. Uh, my view of that personally is that we can have shared values, certainly, but if my partner isn't also contributing in a meaningful way, you really have to question whether or not they have the same kind of commitment to these shared values uh, as we do. So maybe you could take that and expand on that a little bit. Yeah, thank you. These are all excellent points. I would, I would start with the biggest elephant in the room. I mean, for... Uh, several summits now we've been talking about the ally spending at two percent and two percent is significant in that it demonstrates clear commitment uh, these are uh these are targets that have been agreed upon by an alliance of democratic states so uh, when uh, when we constantly revisit the situation where only a, a relatively small number of allies actually meet those targets this is a serious political issue within the alliance. But to be quite frank, if you just ask me personally, if you take politics out, out of this aside, uh, what really matters is real, exercised, usable capabilities. It's everything from military mobility through cyber, through stocks, equipment, uh, access to, to infrastructure, access to harbors, the capacity to reinforce and move across the theater and on and on. And that matters to me more, quite frankly, uh, at the practical military level, uh, whereas the 2% is a clear political statement, very important, again, I emphasize, uh, statement of intent. On the transactional kind of argument, uh, quite frankly, all alliances are to some extent transactional. I mean, we are engaging, especially smaller states, uh, are engaging in, in 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 an alliance framework. Why? Because it increases their security. Because they get something we all do. That the United States benefits greatly from its alliances, both in Europe and and in in other areas of the world, in the Indo-Pacific. But so do the allies, the Europeans, the South Koreans, the Japanese, and so forth. So I don't put too much stock, uh, Dakota, in this transactional challenge. Uh, what makes our alliance unique is that the values buttress the kind of mutuality of obligation and commitment, and they are critical. So, uh, but, but you cannot build the relationship in which you do not have a clear sense that both sides are stepping up to the plate, that countries bring to the table the capabilities that they can bring to the table uh, in, a, in a functioning alliance, in a fully resourced alliance, this allows you to specialize, to actually provide capabilities that you, you would otherwise not have because you can draw on your allies' resources and so forth. Uh, coming back to the bottom line, um, if you think of defending, whether it's in the European theater or in the Indo-Pacific theater, mobility, power projection, all of these are absolutely critical. And so um, if you have an air force that's not deployable, for example, is it really usable in the event of a crisis? If all it can do is, you know, operate on the territory of a member state, uh, I would argue no. That is not enough of what you need. So I don't put that much stock in transactionalism kind of charge. I, I greatly 
emphasize the importance of values. I think this, this is what makes us stronger, uh, but the heavy lifting has to be done on the side of capabilities, infrastructure, and resources. I've, I've turned that uh, myself in a, a, a rhetoric versus reality gap, right? So people say lots of very good things, uh, but then you follow the dollars, you know, or the euros or the yen or what have you, and you see where money is actually being applied and whether there's a reality behind that rhetoric. Uh, so, uh, you know, in our index, just to bring that up, we go to great lengths to kind of document, you know, the quantifiable aspects of military capabilities, especially amongst our allies. Uh, the entire British military establishment, Royal Navy, Royal Air Force, British Army, Royal Marines, the totality of that is smaller than the United States Marine Corps, right? They've got, I think it was 17 surface combatants at last count uh, in their whole Navy. So I'm not sure what you do with the military that small. Uh, a year or so ago, uh, Germany uh, was certainly plagued with problems. You know, no operationally deployable submarines. Uh, during the Cold War, West Germany alone had 5,000 main battle tanks. Today, they have fewer than 300. Uh, contracting out uh, their military flight hours to civilian companies just so their pilots could get in working aircraft and fly enough. So do you think there is a public recognition uh, of the extent to which these partner militaries, uh, not to mention our own, have really declined in capacity and in um, effectiveness, you know, tactical competency, this usable military power that, if it was there, would match the rhetoric and the values that are often spoken about. But it just doesn't seem to be the case. And, and one more item, then, I would say that, say, in the Indo-Pacific, where you see a much more aggressive, militarized, expansionist China, it tends to wake people up. So whereas Japan has had very much a, a self-defense, you know, protective a sort of perspective on the military capabilities. You know, now they're saying maybe we do have to go outside our home waters, you know, and be competent and be able to work with the Americans uh, so that we can actually do something about these shared values and interests. I mean, if you want to take that for a moment and talk about it, and then shortly here we'll get to some questions that have already been rolling in. Sure. Uh, great questions again. So I think the problem is wider than just, you know, European or particular Asian allies because the European and Asian allies, they differ in terms of their commitment and what they spend and how they exercise and how they see security. Uh, I think the problem is structural in the sense that we're still living in the political narrative of what was supposedly happening in 1990. You know, the end of history, the, the unipolarity, the kind of uh, belief that we, we, have, we had a buy-in from the principal players, and most importantly, that China uh, will democratize or at least will become a, a responsible stakeholder in the international system, as, as the famous phrase went, and that Russia would move in, in the direction of democratization. We have known pretty much since Georgia, uh, but definitely since Ukraine, that these assumptions have been misplaced from the very beginning. Uh, and I, in my experience and just from my research and my observations, I think most of the militaries uh, across the NATO alliance and, and also in, in the Indo-Pacific understand that very well. What's lagging is the political public narrative uh, across societies uh, and the kind of almost residual visceral re uh, reluctance to accept the rea reality of what's happening. And the second thing is, the, if, if I'll, I'll look specifically at NATO. Um, 
you know, NATO has enlarged over several cycles. And, uh, and initially, this seemed like a very kind of simple, almost cost-free exercise, right? Because uh, you were working mainly the political piece, you were assisting the new allies in transforming their institutions. And in terms of the actual hard power, military deployments, presence, exercises, all of this was, was almost nebulous kind of in, 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 in the remote future. We're now in the situation where countries that are flank countries uh, need real planning, need real resources, and, and we need to start thinking of this NATO in this new environment. And again, in fairness to the European allies, uh, as Secretary Stoltenberg has been saying, you know, we've got about $70 billion uh, in new commitments, the, the, an extent to which modernization is taking place that needs to be acknowledged, and the reinvestment is taking place that needs to be acknowledged as well uh, across our NATO allies. But my problem is that this is, in my view, not enough, and the biggest question is the timeline. Uh, so all the kind of assessments that we've had and that your organization has done that I've, uh, I've been trying to assess where we are relative to Russian capabilities and what the Chinese are likely to do with their naval construction uh, and whatnot. Um, all of this has been scrambled by COVID. We really do not know, uh, I, I would argue with any degree of precision at this point, whether the timeline of a decade has now contracted to a timeline of five years, uh, what impact the kind of horrendous deficit spending that you see necessary to deal with the impact of COVID, but, but with huge impacts on defense budgets going forward, not just uh, across Europe, also in the United States and our allies in Asia, all of this has to be factored in. So um, what I've been calling for, uh, and especially when it comes to the NATO alliance, is getting the politics of it right first and foremost. That is getting to some level of consensus between our European allies and, and us on the nature of Chinese presence in Europe, uh, whether China in fact is already a direct threat uh, to European security, and I believe it is. Um, and in the Indo-Pacific, what needs to be done in order to ensure that deterrence holds, especially in light of what the Chinese have been doing all across the spectrum in South China Sea, in their naval construction, uh, and, and uh, in terms of access and leveraging the, the research and development base that we have, in my view, very naively, perhaps even foolishly, uh, allowed the Chinese military to gain access to over the last three decades of globalization. We never allowed for that to happen with the Soviet Union. During the Cold War, we never had the kind of access to technology, research, development base, uh, everything that constitutes the, the, you know, the, the strength, the traditional strength of Western democracies. Uh, we have allowed the Chinese economy, the Chinese modernization, and by extension, the Chinese military, relatively free access to that. Uh, thankfully, that is finally ending. So you, you've written extensively about the uh, the geoeconomic impact, whether it's European dependency on Russian energy coming in, or uh, the dependency of European markets on Chinese investment and access to markets, you know those sorts of things. And, and I could spend the next half hour asking you questions on that, and, and perhaps we'll circle back. But I tell you, we've got just a whole uh, list of questions that have come in, and I want to give our attendees their moment here. Uh, they've been so good to, uh, to chime in. So uh, I'm gonna read a few of these questions. I think a lot of them are related uh, to points that you've made. 
And, uh, and after I get through some of them, if you can kind of address those quickly, and then we'll move on to some others. Uh, from Nick, uh, I'm going to mess up the last name, Gavostov from the U.S. Naval War College. Uh, do we need to start thinking about a coalition of the willing among key European and Asian allies capable of taking up the challenge, right? So are there allies and theaters that could take the lead? So more of a coalition of the willing, as we saw in some of the Gulf Wars, as opposed to a formal alliance structure. Um, from um, uh, Professor uh, Holger May, uh, the University of Cologne there in Germany, your neighborhood now, what in your view should be the preferred allies contribution from a U.S. standpoint? That could be really related to a coalition of the willing, right? And so what can they deliver? Is it more the same uh, kind of a contribution in kind? Is it some kind of niche contribution with a specific capability uh, that the U.S. lacks? Maybe it's access or intel, something like that. So your thoughts about that. Uh, Kent Baum asked about uh, universal conscription as a way to bolster U.S. forces if people aren't you know, willingly uh, adding in. And then a fourth one, which only gets us partway through the list so far, uh, from uh, David Cohen, who's an imagery analyst. He has to do with uh, European nations. Have they become too reliant on the American military for the defense of Europe? And it is actually a good thing for the U.S. to pull back to kind of cause some alarm, you know, to wake them up to the necessity of making these contributions or investments that you've talked about. So I think, you know, coalition of the willing, what can people really contribute? Uh, you know, how do we get people to do more than what they have been doing over the last 25 or 30 years? So we'll stop there, get your points, then I'll continue on with the rest of the questions rolling in at the rapid rate. Very good. Thank you. So the first question from Dr. Gvozdiev, I am against thinking about coalitions of the willing for the following reason. I think the risk of fracturing the uh, kind of already stretched at times po policy consensus within the alliance, uh, especially since we're confronting major near peer competitors. This is, we're not talking about an operation out of area, you know, uh, the experience that we've had during the last uh, uh, 20 years of, of operating in the Middle East, operating in Afghanistan, we're looking at uh, essentially major state-on-state -state threat. And I believe if we start tinkering within, especially within as highly bureaucratized and structured alliance as NATO is, rather than trying to bring people together in recognizing what the threats are and the consensus is, we're going to lose the political aspect of it. And secondly, if you look at the structure of the alliance, even getting uh, to the flank, whether it's uh, in the east, southeast, or even if you look at the Nordic uh, Arctic dimension, every single ally in terms of infrastructure that's in between your point of entry, if you're reinforcing and when you need to deploy is absolutely critical to your operations. So bottom line on this, I, I understand where you're coming from. I think uh, we exercise that uh, with relative degree of effectiveness during the global war on terror. I would be against this in the context of great uh, power competition. To the question from Dr. May, um, again, I'm going to sound like a broken record here. I would not go for niche capabilities. Uh, I would not go for simply saying, you know, why don't you invest in infrastructure country X? Why don't you invest in cyber country Y? And then we'll all, all kind of bring it together. Uh, we have been in a de facto disarmament cycle. If you look at what happened to most of the uh, European NATO member military since the end of the Cold War. And we have about two decades in my assessment to make up for. 
So yes, we need roads, but we need tanks on those roads figuratively, of course, uh, on trailers that the bridges can can support. So we need to pay attention to infrastructure, but we also need to have the armor that we need. We need to have aircraft that can deploy that are interoperable with the Allied fifth generation aircraft and so forth. We need so we need to 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 have a comprehensive, very serious reinvestment uh, effort. And that reinvestment, this is what I always emphasize. Um, in response to Dr. May, um, it should happen within the structure of the NATO alliance. I think we run a tremendous risk when we start opening up the Pandora's box about strategic autonomy, about uh, seeing to what extent assets can be allocated simply to the European Union operations as opposed to NATO operations. In the final analysis, those troops, whether they're French, German, you know, British or whatever, they come from the same pool of available uh, manpower and equipment. Um, on universal conscription, that's a tough one. When I talk to professional military guys, and Dakota knows this, that's the last thing they would probably want. Uh, they want highly motivated, engaged, smart, educated uh, military professionals. Uh, where I come to, to, um, to um, conscription uh, is from a more domestic political dimension. Uh, I think uh, one tremendous function, especially in a country as vast as ours, that conscription has historically performed, has been to allow for uh, the kind of gelling of a shared national identity, a shared sense of mutuality of obligation, the sense that patriotic value and responsibilities go outside your class, ethnicity, uh, race, and so forth. Um, and so that you're discovering because you come from different walks of life and you and you serve in some sort of a conscript uh, uh, fashion, you're discovering there's a larger country out there. There's something wrong in my view in trying to sustain a m model where only a fraction of the nation continues to fight the nation's wars. Uh, you know, one half of 1%. And I'm talking about not just guys who deploy, you know, men and women in uniform, but their families, their friends, their communities. So I would be in favor of some sort of national service, maybe not necessarily military conscription, although I would give that option, but not to create a more capable military, but to provide the basic training and to give people a sense of the larger uh, community. The last question, are, are the Europeans still relying on the US military? I've heard this repeatedly, that if we pull back, especially at the high-end capabilities, and if you look even at our operations during the global war on terror in various theaters, and most of the high-end operations, you know, starting with the Balkan operations, were increasingly the U.S. side. The risk here is that too much tough love, uh, tough, tough love can break the family relationship. Uh, again, I would rather see a, a very intense sense of negotiations, a very straight talk away from, from you know, the media spotlight, uh, where we frankly acknowledge what the imperative here is. And I come back to my principal concern. Uh, the US forces are now too small to maintain two simultaneous major theater operations. This is no great secret. You know, we recognize this across the board. So in the event there is a crisis in a theater that requires that we commit to that theater, our allies and the other theater must have enough capabilities with US support to ensure deterrence holds. So in a putative scenario, if there's a crisis in the Indo-Pacific and the U.S. is, is focusing there, uh, the Russians uh, would be uh, pulled into uh, blackmailing or extorting or worse, 
when it comes to our European allies, unless the European allies are fully capable to defend uh, themselves. Yeah, it's, uh, I'll, I'll try to wrap up a couple of questions here in my comment. We've got so many coming in, we're going to be hard pressed to get them all. Um, but there is this aspect of public awareness or appreciation that I kind of referred to earlier, right? Whether it's voluntary service or conscription or what have you. Here in the United States, uh, using 1990 as a reference point, U.S. Army was 770,000 active duty soldiers. Today, it's 480,000. Uh, back then, we had a population of 250 million. Today, we have almost 330 million. So the U.S. military has shrunk by a third, while the population has increased by a third. 72% uh, of American youth in that kind of recruitment age are ineligible due to health problems, run-ins with law, drug use, those sorts of things. So there are increasingly fewer touch points for Americans uh, to have any kind of exposure to military affairs. And I think it's even greater uh, there in Europe or in Japan or in Korea, you know, these same sorts of trend lines. So one of the questions that came in from Darren Duke, a fellow Marine from a long time back, uh, is the resistance in the political public narrative that we're talking about um, really rooted in the incentive to preserve expansive social safety net sorts of things? You know, especially you know, if, you, if you devote more to the defense, it's got to come from someplace. Or is there kind of this social uh, uh, piece that we're talking about? Kind of related to that then, a question from Donald Smith. Uh, in the, is the biggest European threat a land war, more of a hard you know, war kind of thing, or the creeping takeover of Euro states like in the Baltics, you know, kind of a soft war, you know, below the threshold. So the, the relationship between the two, if you really don't perceive this hard kind of core physical threat, it's easy to dismiss security concerns, you know, more concern about social safety net, government entitlement programs, you know, those sorts of things, right? Um, related to that then, Arthur, uh, oh, I'm sure I'm not going to be able to get this uh, last name right, uh, Kapsrik, I'm sorry, analyst, the Polish Institute of International Affairs, uh, given U.S. focus on Asia Pacific, isn't a decrease in U.S. force posture in Europe basically inevitable, right? So you have these clashing of trend lines less appreciation for the necessity of hard power, uh, less people really appreciating that, and yet you have this inevitable shift of attention as uh, you know, uh, the uh, kind of the economic focus shifts to Indo-Pacific, the rise of China, U.S. attention diverting to Indo-Pacific, and less attention being paid by the Europeans on these kind of mutual security interests. So those are three, and maybe if you could briefly address that collection of three, and then we'll get into some more of these others that are coming in. Okay, very good. I'll try to be very concise here. So uh, on the question about uh, ever greater portion of, of our young men and women not knowing anything about the military culture, or as you pointed out, having some health issues and not being fit enough to uh, to serve. This is a huge issue, and I think it goes, it goes to this second question that was also asked. It's about how how the majority of both our society and a number of European societies, pretty much across the board, although it's slightly different when you're talking to people uh, along the flank. If you, if you go to uh, the Baltic states, Poland, you know, uh, uh, Slovakia, you've got a very different sense of, of what the nature of the threat is. For historical reasons, these countries were occupied and controlled by the Soviet Union, and, and they now see uh, the rising Russian military as a threat. But 
there is a societal change. And I think I keep coming back in my writings to the argument that most of our problems, quite frankly, are internal in terms of social cohesion, the kind of larger political consensus at the elite level that can then be communicated across society and recognized as such when it comes to the real, to, to the way the world really looks today in terms of hard power, in terms of kind of predatory behavior uh, that you have seen uh, that has been on, on part of the Chinese. We've tolerate this, tolerated this for decades when it came to market access, theft on technology and, and whatnot. Which brings me to the third point. Um, yeah, I would argue that in, in many regards, uh, we are much more uh, subject to IW threats. We're much more subject uh, to, to uh, hybrid threats than uh, at this point, looking at some sort of a massive all-out attack uh, for one reason. Um, the extent to which, um, especially the Chinese, are in increasingly a power in Europe. Uh, that's the term I like to use. Maybe not a European power, but they're increasingly a player in Europe. Uh, initially, the path was similar to what you saw uh, with uh, the United States. Uh, the Chinese were trying to uh, do what they've done to a number of smaller countries in Europe, acquisition of assets, uh, in effect, uh, growing elite capture kind of efforts and, and, and whatnot. Uh, now you have a, a, a decrease in direct foreign investment from China when it comes to asset acquisition, but you've got increase in investment and research and development. So it becomes more difficult to do that in the U.S. They seem to be the Chinese seem to be shifting more in, in this direction. And if you look also at the ability of the of the Russians to both infiltrate and run uh, uh, irregular operations, um, this, to, to me, is something that needs to be clearly articulated to the public. Because without that larger buy-in from the public, it will be very hard to increase defense spending, especially in the post-COVID environment. Uh, we're looking at potentially devastating cuts in defense spending, not just in Europe, but also possibly in the U.S., unless there is broad-based public understanding of what it is that we're confronting out there and how important it is for the allies to be capable on both sides of the Atlantic. And finally, is the U.S. withdrawal from Europe inevitable since we're focusing on the Asia-Pacific? No. Uh, I, I think the, the United States... Uh, fully appreciates how important it is to maintain presence in Europe and to ensure that Europe uh, can be defended, that Europe can deter threats. Now, it's again a subject of a longer conversation we should have with our allies about what this picture is supposed to look like, say, five and ten years out. And that's the conversation that we should have. Yeah, the uh, next question I'll bring up is from uh, Bill Anderson. Uh, he talks about the potential of China overplaying their hand in Europe. You know, it's noted recently, quote, a survey by the European Council on Foreign Relations found 62% of Europeans view China in a negative light. Now, you have written before about the, the, the critical economic relationship between Germany and China, as an example. Uh, I believe they're uh, the single largest trading partner, right, for Germany, uh, auto exports other sorts of things, right? So uh, a perception that China is being much too aggressive, what they've done in Hong Kong, what they're doing around Taiwan, you know, these sorts of places with a jobs piece where if you want to sell heavy equipment, automobiles and refrigerators and other sorts of things, it's a billion plus person market. And so this dynamic, you know, between security matters and economic matters and how they relate 
really affects the extent to which you know, people want to spend money one way or the other. I mean, Great Britain had this huge debate about Huawei and 5G technologies and who could provide certain capabilities at certain price points. So there is this interrelationship between economics, uh, national security. So uh, get to that one. Um, the uh, next one was uh, from uh, Don Themey, who's up at uh, Naval War College as well. Uh, and it had to do with this niche or shared capability responsibilities. Uh, kind of hard to have that conversation if you don't solve interoperability challenges. You know, so if you're buying one type of airplane and it doesn't play well with another type of airplane, uh, you know, there's national interest for economic reasons to have homegrown capabilities, but those have to you know, reconcile well, right, with who you're wanting to work with, which is a strength of NATO in the past and why coalitions of the willing don't work out, you know, so well. So uh, let's hit those two real quick, and then we'll get into a couple of others that have come in. Okay, the economic piece is huge. Uh, China and Russia differ on a number of, of strategic and tactical uh, approaches, but they agree on one. They prefer to work with individual European countries, individual Asian states, and with us individually. They do not want to have to deal with a larger EU response and with a larger NATO response. Uh, I agree with you with the, with the question also that came in. There is a sense of growing unease on the part of uh, the European political leadership uh, as to how China has behaved. The Chinese have overplayed their hand on a number of, in a number of cases, uh, trying to be heavy handed, especially when it comes to freedom of the media, uh, in, in, in Europe and, and kind of trying to dictate the terms uh, as they have done with us when they were contracting research from universities and, and things of that uh, sort. Um, here the key question is to what extent the pain of the post-COVID recovery uh, will be weighed against the imperative of actually drawing a hard line. Um, if you are a country like Germany that relies very heavily on exports, uh, if you are a country like uh, Spain, you know, or Italy that are now in very dire economic straits because of the complete implosion of, of the tourism and, and other forms of other, other uh, economic activity they could pursue, then that imperative of, of having access to the Asian market is going to be very strong. Uh, it will take a lot of, I think, give and take across the Atlantic and leadership here. And I know I'm not trying to be nebulous. I think, I mean this very sincerely, there needs to be a serious conversation on how we look at China, especially. Because I think we're much closer when it comes to how we see Russia. I think the Europeans, especially after the invasion of Ukraine, understand very well you know, how Russia has behaved. And now we're looking at Belarus as another very, very important data point here. But China remains this, this much more gray zone, amorphous, amorphous area. In, interoperability challenge, I agree 100%. You know, look, we're, we're looking at upgrading generations of aircraft, systems, missiles, we're looking at cyber issues. Uh, if these systems don't talk to each other, uh, it's gonna be a huge, huge problem if you're trying to craft uh, a larger response. And the same thing uh, you know, goes for something as basic as infrastructure. Tanks are heavier, trailers are bigger, you know, uh, all the bridges uh, during the Cold War that were rated to carry them, trailers, access to fueling, all of that stuff requires a broad-based understanding and felt in the bones and communicated to the people that we are tracking for a very dangerous international environment where hard security consider considerations, including military power, are paramount. 
uh, we're approaching the end of our schedule time, but I'm going to push us a little bit further. So I think I've got my tech team on board with that. We're going to go a little bit more because these last uh, couple of questions I think we can get to uh, relate to a comment that you were just making. Uh, Robert Wallace uh, mentions an article by Keller called Divided by Geography, which talks about the East-West and North-South differences in perspective on security concerns within NATO. So uh, he says, how do you envision forcing a country like Italy to view Russia as a threat when they have to manage a failing economy, immigrant challenges, or Turkey, you know, which sees different ways to accommodate Russian interests or pushback, you know, et cetera. And I think what that relates to what you're talking about is these differing perceptions of what constitute an economic or a security interest, right? So if you want access to a port facility, but a country who is really starving for foreign investment allows China to buy a controlling interest in a port and operate a port that U.S. forces would be dependent on to get reinforcements into Europe, that would seem to be a problem, right? But it does marry up these economic interests and security interests. And somewhat related is a comment by uh, Christine McNulty, which talks about the potential of expanding you know, the Five Eyes military intel sharing sort of world uh, to other allies. And I think while in perhaps one way desirable, it's problematic that the more countries you involve in that very close network of sharing high fidelity intelligence, if there are these differing perspectives, you introduce risk into that calculation. So whereas it takes the US a week to 10 days to cross the Atlantic, it takes three weeks to get across the Pacific, right? So this right. access to infrastructure, who is controlling it, differing perspectives of security and economic interests. I mean, they're all really related, aren't they? And if you could just kind of comment on that, we'll try to wrap it up here in the next couple of minutes. So Dakota, you've saved the easy ones for the, for the end. Okay. <laughs> These are excellent questions. Look, the, what I said at the very beginning, the regionalized security optics, uh, it requires a common understanding of what is coming over the horizon. Um, you know, if during the Cold War, the Soviet threat, the Soviet, the Warsaw Pact offensive doctrine, all of that ensured that with whatever friction we had within the alliance, we were all in the same boat, regardless of where you were. You were looking at, at a clear and present danger, and we responded accordingly. Um, I think what we have to first and foremost understand that Russia and China today are aligned. I don't want to quibble whether they're allies, but, you know, all these conversations they share the same interests in dismantling, uh, revising, or completely displacing when it comes to China, the existing order. What that means is that what happens across Eurasia with the Chinese infrastructure projects, with the attempt to push us out of Western Pacific, uh, with the growing naval capability, missile capability, uh, cyber and, and, and other systems they're putting in place, uh, all of that is creating a situation where we're looking at a fundamental shift in power distribution in how trade flows go. Right now, the United States Navy controls uh, basically the routes that allow uh, for maritime trade to be what it has been. 75% of all imports coming into Europe, coming through the Atlantic, they, they are they're able to come there because the U.S. considers the sea lanes of, of, of communications uh, in both in the Pacific and the Atlantic control over the internet, we provide most of the satellites, all of that. What we're looking at with a, with a Chinese-Russian effort to overthrow this 
is a fundamental shift uh, where if it comes to that, if the Chinese build a alternative land-based supply network, the Belt and Road, the 50 special economic zones, everything that, that they've been talking about and trying to accomplish, that would transform, in effect, Europe from being an entry point for the transatlantic community into Eurasia, into a tail end of a Chinese-dominated supply chain. Uh, and the same would apply to the countries that are now on the periphery uh, in the Indo-Pacific. That is the kind of understanding that has to enter the conversation. We are missing the big picture and being able to organize and mobilize our public opinions by speaking just almost like the, the Russians want to do this, talk about individual threats. We have to see the threat as a comprehensive global threat that these two great near peer competitors opposing to us. And then we can work the lower tier of the problems. Turkey, you know, the East-West relationships, the differences, when it comes to economic interests, I think once we get that largest strategic consensus, those are manageable. Well, I think it's a great way to wrap up the conversation. I was really struck by one of the uh, many comments you had in your essay that uh, alliances don't unravel, they hollow out, right? So <laughs> it's people losing focus and losing a sense of what's important. So I would encourage all of our uh, attendees here, have been fantastic, the questions were great to really click on the link and read uh, Dr. Essay, Dr. Essays, Dr. Mikta's fantastic essay uh, that he's contributed to our uh, index of uh, U.S. military strength. Uh, it, it really is must reading. It's been picked up by a lot of news services and uh, we expect it to go a long way in uh, really promoting and forwarding this conversation. So uh, Andrew, thanks so much for taking time. I know it's your six hours ahead uh, there in Garmisch, but uh, thanks for staying around and sharing these insights. Uh, to our attendees, thanks for taking time out of your day. I know it's busy. These webinars are kind of weird things, but it's the way we get around and continue to share ideas. And thanks for the great uh, support from our heritage team that makes this sort of thing possible. So again, God bless all and thank you for your time and attention.